The Fed's also buying one and a half trillion dollars per year of, of assets. And if it keeps doing that for the next, you know, three, four, five years, the Fed will be where the Bank of Japan is today. All right, everyone, welcome to On the Margin. Today, I'm joined by uh, Mr. Yurian Timmerer, uh, who is Director of Global Macro at Fidelity. Uh, Yurian, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Awesome. Uh, we're going to see how well uh, we're doing with my own technical skills, because this is actually going to be the first interview where we're sharing some charts. Uh, and I'm, I'm surprised we're going to be sharing charts, because usually I feel like people would want to focus on this amazing outfit that you've got, very fashion forward, unlike me and my plain t-shirt. I'm <laughs> feeling like uh, you're outdoing me on my own show here. Um, but very exciting. Um, awesome. Well, let, let, let's dive right in here. Um, I'm ex- I actually kind of want to start things off with uh, a big question for you, but one that tends to get asked quite a bit. Uh, and it's kind of this idea of, are we in a bubble? right now. And you have this amazing framework for how you kind of answer this question. So I'm going to pull up um, some charts here that would kind of help, is going to help us kind of walk through uh, what we're talking about. But um, why don't you start with like in broad strokes, how do you think about answering that question? What does your framework look like? Yeah. So, you know, I've been in the business 36 years um, and, you know, in the past, people would hardly ever mention the word bubble. You know, we had one in the, the late 90s, of course, the dot-com era. But, you know, bubbles were always seen as a once-in-a-generation thing. Um, and now, of course, everyone calls everything a bubble, and it kind of dilutes the meaning of, 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 of the word bubble, right? So, um, so are we, uh, the way I would phrase it is, are we in a period of asset inflation? Mm. You know, we, have, we can think of inflation in, 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 in different ways, right? There's price inflation, which, of course, we're seeing right now. CPI is up 5.4%. We have monetary inflation, which we're certainly seeing uh, in the wake of the pandemic, you know, the excess money. So the, the M2 growth minus GDP growth uh, last year went to 22 percent, which is mm. off the chart. So we're seeing monetary inflation, which is why, of course, we talk about gold and Bitcoin. Um, but we also see asset inflation and there's a direct channel from policy into asset inflation. And that, that's kind of a nice thing about the discounted cash flow model. It's a little bit you know geeky. And one of the issues with the DCF um, is that there are so many variables. There's so many things you have to um, assume that makes it almost unusable. But if you make some assumptions, you can see the kind of the transmission mechanism um, of, of policy into the market, or at least we can we can look at all the moving parts and kind of squeeze them into the DCF because the DCF basically is the numerator has cash flows for any asset, right? Whether it's real estate or stocks or bonds. And then the denominator is the discount rate, which is the rate at which we discount those cash flows. And for the stock market, that discount rate is um, the, the, the risk-free rate, as we call it, the 10-year treasury yield, mm-hmm. plus the equity risk premium, which is kind of like a credit spread, uh, but for stocks. So it's the premium that investors demand over the risk-free asset. And historically, uh, the equity risk premium, the actually realized premium that investors have gotten out of stocks over bonds is around 4%. So that's kind of a, a good starting point. But actually, if we go to the next uh, slide here, let, let's pull up the DCF. Um, and and so, you know, this may be hard to read, especially if you're looking at this on, on a phone, but it's it's just a useful way to see how convex the market is to interest rates right now, right? So we know about convexity in the bond market. In other, in other words, if, if bond yields go from 10 to 9, it has not even remotely close to the same impact on a portfolio, a bond portfolio, as if rates go from 2 to 1, right? So that's con- convexity. Uh, but that convexity applies to the stock market as well. So right now, the, you know, the 10-year Treasury is 1.2, 1.3. And if it were to go to 2.3, which is where it would be if um, if interest rates were more reflective of inflation expectations, right? The tips break even is around 2.2. And if you regress the break evens to nominal yields, you're going to find that the 10-year Treasury really should be around 2.3%. Uh, but because of Fed policy, it's at 1.3%. So that's 100 basis points difference. And what you can see here is on the vertical axis on this chart. So, so all the numbers on this on this uh, matrix here are the fair value PE ratio 
based on different assumptions. So on the vertical, you see the assumption of what you use as a discount rate. So if the equity risk premium is 4%, the 10 year is at 1.3, that means the discount rate is around 5.3. Um, on the horizontal is the, uh, the payout ratio. So the way we look at this is uh, you look at earnings, and you, you, you determine how much of those earnings are being returned to shareholders or investors via dividends and via um, share buybacks. Now, buybacks are not a direct return of, of cash, but it's an indirect return, right? So these are companies, generally speaking, who generate a lot of free cash flow, you know, the big, the big FANG stocks, for instance. Um, they, they have more of it than they know what to do with. Uh, and this is after capital spending has been satisfied. And then um, rather than sitting on that cash, they return some of it indirectly by buying back shares. And that reduces the, the trading float. Um, and that has an impact actually on what investors are willing to pay for those stocks because it increases the payout. But it also has another impact, which is that financial engineering, kind of the, 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 the science of buying back shares, when you retire the denominator of EPS, earnings per share, so if you reduce the share count and you produce the same earnings, the EPS will go up. Um, uh, so in other words, each dollar of earnings will, will produce more EPS than it did without buybacks. And so by my calculations, which is not really shown on this chart, but by my, my calculation, the buyback era started around 20 years ago, uh, and it has boosted earnings per share by around 15 to 20%, which means that it is de, um, it's understating the PE by about 15 to 20%. So I, I don't wanna lay that, at the blame, uh, lay that blame at the feet of the Fed, uh, because the buyback era started before QE, before zero interest rates. So I don't know that the Fed is responsible for that when we talk about bubbles and are we in a bubble? Uh, but clearly on the interest rate side, we can, we can point to a direct transmission channel with the Fed depressing rates by 100 basis points. And then you can see on this table, 100 basis points is worth five PE points at current interest rates, right? If, if the discount rate for the, for the DCF was at 8%, and it went to 9%, that would be worth only two PE points. But if it's at 55 going to 6.5%, assuming that monetary policy might normalize, which is not an assumption I'm prepared to make, by the way, uh, but then it's worth five PE points, which means that the PE is 25% higher than where it would be if the Fed was not doing all this stuff in the market. So um, is that a bubble, 25%? I would not call that a bubble, um, but it is clearly asset inflation because the market would be, uh, you know, the inverse of that would be the market would be 20% lower if we had a normal interest rate environment. Yeah. So, so just to wrap all that up, um, basically what you're kind of saying is the market looks like it's overvalued right now, but maybe calling it a bubble is a bit of uh, – hyperbole. And I know that there are some folks out there who are going to say, but look at uh, where PE is relative to historic measures and the CAPE measure and all that kind of stuff. And what I would gently suggest is if you were investing purely based on those metrics and compared it to historical norms, you honestly wouldn't have done super well. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, what I love about your analysis here is that you really do focus a lot on interest rates. And it's been marked, it re remarked a lot that there is, you'd be hard pressed to find a time in history where you've seen a market that's more sensitive to what's going on in rates. Outside of valuing just equity markets in general and kind of the convex um, implications that a low rate environment has, what are some of the other uh, uh, side effects of living in this super low interest rate world that we've been in for the past uh, however many years? Um, you, you kind of touched on something very interesting, which is kind of this area of like financial arbitrage or kind of this idea of productive risk taking versus financial risk taking. Um, like, talk a little bit about what, what are some of the other implications of just living for a sustained period of time in this low interest rate environment? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. And, and before I answer, I just want to just did want to follow up on your P.E. Uh, point, which is absolutely spot on. Right. So mm -hmm. when you compare the Cape, which is, you know, at almost the highest levels, the other time it was this high was in the dot com bubble. Think about what level interest rates were then versus now, right? So this is what I like about the DCF, that it really incorporates all the moving parts, whereas a PE, it really just looks at price over earnings. 
And even if interest rates were not a factor, the PE isn't enough on itself because it doesn't look at buybacks or, or at the payout ratio, right? So uh, the PE in 2000 was before the buyback era, which means that um, the, the payout of earnings going back to shareholders was much lower. It was probably 50%. Now it's 70%. That 20 percentage points, you know, is worth something, and so there's. So to me, the Cape is is kind of a very um, uh, blunt instrument by, mm -hmm. by which by which to measure. But but to your to your question, um, you know, we are living in a, an almost unprecedented time. The only other time that I find to be very analogous to the current one actually is the are the 1940s mm -hmm. um, when the US went uh, you know joined World War II uh, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor um, and that was an era of financial <clears throat> of, of fiscal monetary coordination so the Fed was not yet independent that happened in 1951 that was the Treasury Fed Accord and that was a direct result of the 1940s but basically, before 1951, one of the jobs of the Fed, I mean, it had many jobs, but one of them was to monetize wartime debt. Mm. And so if you think about it, we're, we're kind of in, in, a, in that kind of time, right? Uh, I mean, kind of it's the war on COVID, not, not, a, not a hot war. Uh, but, you know, the, the debt to GDP went up threefold or fourfold uh, during the 1940s. The Fed monetized all of it. It set interest rate caps on T-bills at three-eighths of a percent, on the 10-year or long-term treasuries at two and a half percent. It kept policy rates at around one, one and a half percent, even though inflation was going through the roof at the time. Um, and the Fed's balance sheet, the Fed did QE back in the 40s. No, nobody, not a lot of people know that. Uh, but the Fed's balance sheet went up um, tenfold. It went, you know, so a massive increase. Now, as a percentage of GDP, it was still much lower than it is today, right? Today, it's mm -hmm. about 36%. Back then, it was a, a fraction of that. But it was, that was a complete fiscal monetary, um, you know, um, coordination. And if you look at kind of the, like the efficient frontier, right? Do you look at the risk return trade-off of cash, bonds, equities, gold, et cetera? Normally, you've got this upward slope and cash is on the lower left-hand side of the chart, right? It's kind of earning the inflation rate most of the time, certainly mm -hmm. not, not today, right? But most of the time it is. And then you go up the curve uh, from lower left to upper right and you get to bonds, you get to a 60-40, you get to stocks, you get to small caps, emerging markets, etc. During the 1940s, uh, you know, financial repression was in place and so the long bond or long-term bonds had the same volatility and the same return as T-bills because the whole system was repressed. You know, bonds were locked in at a 2.5% yield and all of them were below the inflation rate. So that was, I think, a very analogous period because the Fed's doing exactly the same right now, right? We have lots of lots of deficits, uh, a lot of a lot of debt being issued because of all you know the CARES Act and then the fiscal stimulus, and now we're getting infrastructure, and after that we're getting the American Jobs and Family Plan. So you're looking at it could be it could be as much as ten trillion dollars from the beginning of the pandemic till the end of this uh, fiscal period. Um, and the Fed is, is basically gobbling it all up and putting it on its balance sheet. You know, the Fed's balance sheet's now at $8.3 trillion. And the SOMA, the System Open Market Account, is about $7.6 And so we get financial repression. Um, people are losing purchasing power on their money. And yes, this is a good chart to, uh, to bring up. Uh, so in the bottom panel there, you see uh, the, the Treasury issuance um, in the yellow bars, and the blue line is the Fed's year-over-year um, -year change in its balance sheet. And you can see that, you know, this does not happen very often, right? So oftentimes, monetary policy and fiscal policy are actually running against each other, not with each other, right? So you have periods where there's a, a response to a crisis. The financial crisis was one of them. The 1940s that I just mentioned uh, was probably the most, the, the, the most obvious example. But oftentimes, if, there, if deficits are being created, the Fed may actually be tightening policy 
to, uh, to kind of take the punch bowl away, as we tend to call it. And that happened in 2017 and 18, right? We had the tax, the tax cuts from the Trump administration. Uh, pretty large deficits were being run in an expansion, and the Fed was taking the punch bowl away. Um, and we can see the opposite of that too, right? In 2011, 12, 13, the Fed was doing massive QE, but we had the Tea Party coming into power and kind of, you know, forcing some fiscal austerity. So, so this one-two punch of fiscal monetary that we're seeing today um, rarely, rarely happens, certainly in the modern era. And, you know, if we have a Fed that is more socially inclusive-minded or more ESG-minded, as is the Treasury, where the Fed is, is kind of putting its inflation mandate on the back burner, and that's a whole other conversation that we can talk about, while it is um, emphasizing uh, full employment. Um, you yeah. can see that you know, the lines at the top there show the difference between the current unemployment rate and what's called the natural rate of unemployment, otherwise known as, uh, formerly known as Nehru, but really full employment, right? There's always some unemployment going on as people move around um, in, in the labor um, market. Uh, but that gap for the U3, which is the most narrow version of unemployment, it's still 1.3. It used to be 10 during the lockdown. But for the U6, which is the broadest measure, it's still 5.7 percentage points. So, there is still a big gap there, and so that tells me that the Fed is going to uh, remain very, very accommodative. And whether it is kidding itself, thinking that, well, if inflation ends up being more than transitory, we have the tools to, to deal with that, uh, you know, we can, we can debate whether that's actually true, because at a debt to GDP at 120, 130 percent, the, the, the economy is not going to be able to tolerate anything like, you know, what we saw in the 70s when Paul Volcker, uh, you know, rose rates, uh, uh, raised rates to, to, to combat inflation. So th that's a whole other conversation. Howdy, guys. Excited to talk to you a little bit about this week's sponsor, Matrixport. If you're like me, you're trying to figure out how can I make my crypto go as far as it possibly can. Well, Matrixport makes it really easy to do the simple stuff like just buying and trading and you're holding your crypto on a secure platform that you don't have to worry about. But they also help you take that next step to doing things like getting loans against your crypto or earning yield on it. Let's talk about the yield part because for me, that earn feature is the most interesting thing that they do. Number one, first step you can start earning up to 30% APY on your USDC deposits. That's about 29.99% more than if you just kept those funds in a bank account. Talk about a no-brainer. Number two, their team walked me through this. They have made accessing DeFi easy. And guys, I am telling you, I am the biggest Luddite on the face of the earth. If I can understand this stuff, then I promise, so can you. So don't wait. At least go check them out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Thank me later. I, I love this chart that you put together here because, you know, and our economic strategist, Alison Reichel, has, has really driven this point home as well. Uh, there, there's been a lot of uh, kind of question asking, right, which is how is uh, are, are the Fed and the government kind of keeping these uh, these monetary and fiscal policy guns blazing, uh, especially when in, in May and June, we've seen kind of some of the, the most inflationary impulses that we've seen, at least in the case of June in core CPI in three decades, right, since the early 90s. And everyone's kind of looking at this and saying, oh, my God, how are we continuing to pump liquidity into the economy? Uh, well, the Fed is looking at something very different, right? They're looking at where uh, where we are in terms of unemployment, and they're looking at this measure of the natural rate of employment. So I love that you kind of uh, juxtapose these two things um, together. Um, I, I'd love if we could actually talk a little bit as well about what's just going on with uh, interest rates. Like, let's focus on the 10-year. The um, so there's been a lot of questions about, hey, how is the 10-year, how are yields actually um, kind of continuing to fall and decline uh, in the rate of, or in the face of uh, potentially an inflationary environment? Um, so can you just talk a little bit about, like, what you see is going on in the 10-year? Like, what, what's the reason for what's happening with, with rates right now? Yeah, I'm, I, I have to admit, I'm, I was a little surprised to see the 10-year fall that quickly, right? It, it went, uh, you know, a year a year plus ago, it was at uh, half a percent. Actually, on the day, kind of on the lockdowns in March, it briefly went to 31 basis points, but it then it shot up and then it went back to a point, to about 0.5 percent. And then it's gradually started to, to rise, as it should have done, right, as the crisis passed. 
and we go from bear market for stocks to an early cycle bull market, rates should be rising to reflect that that better environment. Um, and the 10-year peaked at 175 you know, earlier in the spring. And that was part of what we call the reflation trade or the reopening trade, right? right. So we know we, we, we can check all the boxes, right? Bear, bear steepener, higher rates, um, higher tips, break evens, small cap over large, value over growth, uh, commodities in a bull market. So these are all different manifestations of the reflation trade. And of course, negative real rates is part of it, a weaker dollar, which we're not seeing right now, but that was part of it. Maybe some outperformance by non-US stocks because of that currency translation effect. Uh, that was all part of the reflation trade. And of course, the value versus growth was a very prominent aspect of that. Um, and then, and I actually, I actually tracked this very closely. Um, uh, where, you know, the, the New York Fed has a really cool indicator called the Weekly Economic Index, WEI. And what I've learned, you know, m many years ago is that the market is always tuned into the rate of change or the second derivative of whatever economic indicator we're looking at. Um, and so the weekly change in that weekly index, right? So that index is a diffusion index, but I look at the weekly, uh, the, the weekly delta of that index. Um, that bottomed in uh, March of last year. That was also the bottom um, in, um, in many, many of these indicators. And then it peaked earlier in the spring, I think it was in March, and to basically that week, that was the peak in small cap versus large. And then the tips break even. So that was peak reopening, as, as, we, as I call it. And then we had peak inflation, uh, or at least inflation expectations, right? So the CPI is running hot now, but the market is looking way past that already. So tips break evens are actually, I think, a better, um, a better indication of what the market is thinking that inflation is going to be. And the tips break even peaked in May. And with that peak came the peak of value versus growth and, and interest rates, um, the yield curve and, and everything else. So we're kind of post-peak reopen, we're post-peak inflation. Um, and now, of course, we have the Delta variant. Um, and so um, there's a lot of new new balls in the air. Uh, but I'm surprised that the 10-year went as low as, you know, 115 or so, a few, a few uh, about a week ago. We're at 1, 130 or so right now. Um, but it shows you that um, that you know peak growth is being priced in, into the market. So I, I still see the over under as you know the the ten year probably will go higher rather than lower from here because I do think the fundamentals remain intact. Hopefully the Delta variant passes in the UK. It seems to have pretty decisively peaked already. So hopefully you know we're only a few weeks behind that. Um, but I still see some more upside for for the ten year than downside. But uh, but at the same time, the Fed, um, you know, if we look at what's what happened, what's happening in Japan, right? The Bank of Japan has completely removed the volatility of the bond market. It owns uh, just under half of the bond of the JGB market. Yields there are zero. Real yields are zero. Um, and uh, the yen is fairly stable. So the, the Bank of Japan has kind of achieved, um, you know, what I think the Fed did achieve back in the 1940s and maybe will be able to achieve this time, which is to to make the bond market just you know, not be a market anymore. And so, you know, the Fed, uh, the Bank of Japan owns just under half of the JGB market. The Fed, if you dissect the balance sheet of eight trillion or so, five of that eight is is treasuries. You know, there's a bunch of mortgage backed securities in there as well. And then there's other things. Um, so the Fed owns a lot less of the U.S. Treasury market than the Bank of Japan does of the JGB market. But the Fed's also buying one and a half trillion dollars per year of, of assets. And if it keeps doing that for the next, you know, three, four five years, um, the Fed will be where the Bank of Japan is today. Uh, and, and so maybe the bond market will just be permanently mispriced and we'll have yields that are at least 100 basis points below where they really should be. And again, it's not a it's not a it's not a prediction, but, you know, it, it certainly wouldn't shock me because when you have debt levels as high as we have them here in the States, and this is not a U.S. problem alone, it's everywhere around the world, you know, total debt to GDP, including corporate uh, personal debt in the U.S. is 296 uh, percent, so 3x. In Japan, it's 419%. And most of the developed world, Europe, and, and also I include China in there, 
you're running at 300 plus per, uh, percent. So this is a global debt issue. And this, I think, is one of the things that we have to understand when we talk about digital assets and gold, that the dollar isn't doomed you know, to, to die here because it's, it could still be the cleanest dirty shirt when you compare all the issues around the world. But, but you have this chart up, and I think this is a very good cautionary tale uh, for when we think, when we connect the dots and we think, you know, this has to end in tears, hyperinflation, currency collapse, loss of the, of the, of the reserve status for the U.S. dollar. Uh, I'm not prepared to draw any of those conclusions yet, as much as I'm a bull on hard assets, gold, silver, Bitcoin. Um, but you look at where Japan is, right? Jap the U.S. is where Japan was 10 years ago. So demographically, we're on the same track. You look at the lower left there, it's the, it's the employment to population ratio. Lower right is the labor force growth. It's the same chart, right? I mean, the, the U.S. is 10 years behind Japan in terms of demographics. You look at where rates are in the U.S., you know, we're about one and a half. In Japan, we're at zero. Um, like we just said, Japan completely controls the bond market. Um, it mm. can make bond yields do whatever it wants because it owns so many of them. And you look at the upper right, which to me is really the most eye-opening part of this chart. Bank of Japan uh, balance sheet is 131% of GDP. Uh, you know, the U.S. is at 36 and we're and we're all, you know, <laughs> losing our minds over it. Um, you know, the, 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 the U.S. Fed is like it's like an amateur night compared to what the Bank of Japan has done. Um, but again, you look at wh where they are, right? They have zero inflation, zero rates. The yen is pretty stable. Now, it's not the reserve currency and Japan has done a lot. You know, it's it, it's economy, it's culture is totally different. The policy channels of fiscal and monetary policy are different. So there, there's many, many, many differences. But to me, this is a good illustration where I don't want to just conclude that this is all going to go to hell because um, central banks sometimes can keep this thing um, still still together for a while. And, and you know, again, 131% of GDP is, is a pretty impressive number. And if the Fed uh, keeps doing what it's doing, um, even if it doesn't need to do it economically in terms of an emergency because of the pandemic, but if it just does it because the debt levels will go up too much and when you have this much debt, negative real rates have to, you know, real rates have to be negative, right? I mean, if like after World War II, the U.S. was able to grow out of its debt. You know, by the 1970s, debt to GDP had gone from 116% to 30%. So that's a real success story. Inflation was very much part of that, but growth was as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think we're going to have to growth this time around because you can see where the demographics are. And so it has to then come through currency debasement, negative real rates, because that um, is probably the sneakiest way to get out of debt because people tend to not realize they're, they're paying an, an invisible tax on their bond holdings. Yeah. Uh, you're in a ton to unpack there. Um, I actually want to rewind just a, a minute here before, and then I want to, because so much of what you said, just this kind of era of uh, negative real rates and what can we learn from Japan as kind of an example or a progenitor of the U.S. and basically kind of the road we're going down in terms of monetary fiscal policy. One um, theory, so we, we had a guy named Jeff Snyder uh, appear on the show a couple of weeks ago, uh, and the theory that he kind of put forth for why interest rates are doing what they're doing in the U.S. is that overall, if you look at QE as a program, it, uh, despite kind of these memes of money printer go burr and printing all this money, et cetera, it actually ha kind of has this uh, net negative effect on liquidity because the mechanism, if you look at QE, it's actually an asset swap in between uh, reserves um, and treasury. So generally what you're seeing, um, and there's that great chart you were showing before about kind of net treasury issuance, but you are, as the Fed is doing these swaps through the QE program, you're actually taking um, treasuries out of the market and putting them to this black hole, which is the Fed balance sheet. Uh, at the same time, there is, because of the way we've constructed our financial uh, system, at least over here in the West, in the US, it's a highly collateral-based system. And the most pure form of collateral, at least in the world today, is US treasuries. So one way that you could look at why rates are doing what they're doing is because of this demand for collateral in the form of treasuries, which is pushing down yields. Do you agree with that framework or, or what's your kind of take there? Yeah, I, no, I, I do agree. And so one of the big conundrums is, you know, we have all this monetary inflation. 
We have all this asset inflation. We talked about that earlier. Uh, and again, monetary inflation, I define it as the excess money, M2 growth minus GDP growth. That number is coming down because GDP is recovering and the rate of change of, 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 the, of the deficit creation is, is coming down. Mm -hmm. I mean, the deficits are still there, but the delta is coming down. Um, but one of, the, one of the, 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 the puzzles is that when you look historically, you go back 200 years and you look at um, money supply growth versus inflation, and you look at like a 10-year CAGR or a five-year CAGR, I tend to smooth out those numbers to get out of the small uh, cycles, you can see that until the 2000s, every boom in money supply growth, which usually came during wartime, right? Civil War, mm -hmm. World War II, um, usually every boom in, in monetary inflation was followed by price inflation. That broke down in the 2000s, and we can, we can maybe point to technology as one reason, but I also point to, to, to demographics, and, and we have the chart still up. You know, I think the demographic wave is very deflationary, and so whatever inflation is coming from Fed policy, from fiscal policy, needs to overcome that very long deflationary headwind, and I'm not convinced that that's that that's going to be happening right it didn't happen in japan although japan's policy channels again completely different than what we're seeing here um, but the other point is 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 one that you just raised you know after the financial crisis the fed did uh, a lot of qe you know trillions of dollars and there was no inflation and i think this is obviously um this is producing the behavior we're seeing from the Fed to some degree, where it's like, you know, they've underperformed their, their 2% bogey <clears throat> for over 10 years. So let, let's put that on the back burner and we'll just focus on, um, uh, on, 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 the, on the full employment mandate of the Fed. Um, but what happens when the Fed does QE, that money goes into the banks, right, as excess right. reserve. So it doesn't find its way into the real economy, or at least it didn't back then. Because, you know, the banking crisis, I mean, the financial crisis was a banking crisis. You know, banks, their balance sheets were 30, 40 times their equity, uh, and they got regulated, you know, um, the, uh, all, all the regulation that came out of the financial crisis. They were cleaning up their balance sheet. They went from 40 times back to, you know, 10 times or whatever it is now. And so they were not in a mood to lend. And as they're not in the mood to lend because they are deleveraging their balance sheet, they're getting all these excess reserves uh, shoved onto their balance sheet. Uh, and the idea was that you know, the bank, you know, the, the, the central bank eases, gives the money to the, to the commercial banks. The commercial banks then lend it out in a fractional reserve uh, system. Mm -hmm. and, and that creates, you know, that boosts the money supply and you get economic activity, you get inflation. That whole transition mechanism was broken. And maybe it will work now because now we really do have a double-barreled fiscal monetary policy and we're seeing the effects, right? I mean, try to book a, an airline seat or rent a car yeah. right now. It's impossible. And I think that's not because of what the Fed's doing, but it's because of the fiscal side. Um, and so I do think that the backdrop is different this time. But, but, you know, but to your earlier point, the Fed is doing so much QE that the banks are basically choking on it. And at yeah. the same time, the latest bout of fiscal policy expansion, the, the 1.9 trillion uh, stimulus from, you know, what is it, three, four, five months ago, um, the Treasury is not borrowing in the market to pay for that because the Fed, the Treasury, uh, through its TGA, its Treasury general account, has so much cash sitting at the Fed, which it earned from the Fed doing all this QE in, in the past, right? I mean, that the Fed's made a lot of money in with QE, uh, but that doesn't belong to the Fed, it belongs to the Treasury. Uh, and so the, the Treasury has been drawing down about a trillion dollars or more of, uh, of its cash balance at the Fed, which means it didn't have to borrow money, which means that there now is a shortage of T-bills. And so money market funds and other investors, um, and even banks who are choking on this QE, um, you know, now you see this action in the reverse repo market, and in a way, it's yeah. it, it's counter easing, right? So it it's a, it's kind of it's a weird system, um, but it tells you that there is a limit to how much the Fed can can do in terms of what its effects are until it actually starts to backfire. But I think the Treasury um, plays a large role in that because it's drawing cash down from the Fed rather than issuing bonds. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Yorian, so looking forward at the next however long period of time, right, um, what you said reminds me just about being in this era of negative real rates. It, you know, there's a guy, Luke Groman, I'm not sure if you follow his work or familiar, but uh, he kind of also has predicted this sustained period of uh, negative real rates that could literally be as low as 5 or five or 10%. Uh, in my mind, there are kind of two buckets of ramifications. There's ramifications on the standpoint of markets, like right in that kind of uh, environment, where do I park my assets, right, to kind of best optimize for retaining my wealth or even profiting. Uh, and two, then there are kind of social ramifications. And the the uh, example of Japan is actually quite interesting because you're absolutely right. They've gone further down this monetary fiscal path uh, than we have. But there are some kind of interesting social uh, implications that are starting to evolve. I, I want to start on the market and investment side of things. So just from the like a broad 10,000 foot view, what sort of assets tend to do well um, in this sort of environment that we're talking about? And how would you be thinking about making allocation decisions? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. So I, I do agree with Luke, um, and I, I, I do follow his work, uh, that real rates will remain negative for a long, long time. It's really the only way uh, to get out of jail, if you will, when you are running uh, large debts. I mean, obviously, the U.S. is not going to default. Um, I don't think there will be a debt jubilee because it won't be necessary. You know, that if the Fed, you know, all the U.S., all the Treasury has to do is issue perpetual zero zero rate bonds and the Fed buys them. And you don't have to have a debt, a, a debt jubilee or a default because you can just kind of make, make, make the debt um, go away. Uh, but usually, you know, the ideal way to get out of debt is to is to borrow money for productive uses and you get a return on that debt and you grow out of it, right? And then the debt to GDP, which is always a ratio, goes down even if the debt doesn't go down, but GDP will go up. Again, demographically, I don't know that that's really in the cards the way it was back in the 50s. We also had a baby boom back then, which we have the opposite of now. Um, so financial repression, I think, is really the only way to keep the debt burden low. And rates will have to stay low because at 120, 130% of GDP, uh, the system just can't handle it. Um, uh, so what do you do as an investor? Well, fortunately, uh, we have an asset class called equities that um, is a proven uh, inflation hedge. It may not be a hyperinflation hedge, but I'm, I'm, I don't think we're going to hyperinflation at all. Uh, but it is a proven inflation hedge. So when I look at you know, I, I dissect all these periods of history and I look at, OK, during the 40s, financial repression, World War II, um, what what happened? Well, small caps and value stocks did extremely well, better than large caps uh, growth stocks. But back then, large cap growth was more the quality stocks like the Procter and Gamble's and, and less, you know, the, 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 the Googles and the Apple's because they didn't uh, exist back then. Um, so equities, I think, are a proven sort of anchor, you know, I mean, the value proposition for stocks is they, they go up only 60% of the time. Uh, you have to go through some fairly gut-wrenching uh, volatility from time to time. You know, the odds of a 10% correction are about 40-50%. The odds of a 20% bear market are one in four. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you can hold on long enough uh, and you can stomach that volatility, you're going to get 10, 11% return. Uh, you know, if you think about Bitcoin, that's like a highly amplified version of that, right? Right, right, right. Um, but, but so equities to me, um, you know, um, they, they are an absolutely proven compounder. You know, they, you know, gold cannot compete uh, with equities other than during specific periods of adverse monetary regimes, by which I mean monetary inflation. So mm -hmm. gold is a very good anchor, and I think Bitcoin kind of has taken the baton from gold in that sense. But gold doesn't compound, right? So over the long term, um, it's really hard to beat equities. Um, they compound at 11% a year. Bonds compound at 6% per year. But right now we have negative yields. And I think that's negative real yields. And that's probably going to remain the case. So certainly at the short end of the bond market, you're, you're kind of guaranteed to lose money, a couple of percent per year. Um, but so equities to me are still uh, in the sweet spot in terms of providing that portfolio anchor. And so in a 60-40 world, right, we've been in a 60-40 world for the last two decades or so, yeah. where the notion is, you know, you, you have a large chunk in, in risk assets, stocks, real estate, what have you, uh, and then you offset that by having some bonds. And in the old days, bonds would give you and a yield, and it would give you insurance against 
deflationary shocks in the stock market. Now, we, only, we still have the insurance part, but we don't have the yield part anymore. So the 40, I think, so when I think about the markets in this current era of financial repression, um, it's not the 60 that I'm focused on because I think the 60 will be fine. Maybe within that 60, you've, you tilt to value instead of to growth, maybe. But it's the 40 side where I think we need to tinker, right? So long duration, like if we look at back at, at, the, at the 40s, um, you know, bonds were at two and a half. They didn't go anywhere. They lost purchasing power. Then during the 60s, when we started the actual secular advance in inflation, which started very, very slowly in the 60s, and then all of a sudden, you know, then, then, and then suddenly in the early 70s, um, equity still did well until we got to the early to mid 70s. Mm. Um, but it's the 40 side, the bond side, where I think we need to think about, because if you've, if you've lost the income part of that, uh, and even the insurance part, right, if inflation goes up from here, history shows that the stocks to bond correlation uh, is positive during inflationary periods as huh. opposed to negative. And if the 40 does not insure you against the 60, then and you have a loss of purchasing power, then why are you in the 40, right? So <laughs> this is where I think tips come in. This is where cash over long duration makes sense. Um, as you can see from this chart, this is where gold and silver and Bitcoin come in. You can see clearly that when the when money supply is growing, uh, well above average. So that's the gray line compared to the dotted gray line. So the dotted gray line is the average M2 growth over time. And the solid gray line is the actual current M2 growth or, or, or M2 level, sorry, I should say that. Um, and so we're clearly in a period of monetary inflation. And when that happens, uh, the market share of gold relative to the money supply goes way, way up. Yeah. So we had that in the 70s. We had that during the financial crisis. We had that in the 30s and 40s. And so, so this is a good way, I think, to play around with the 40. Um, um, and, and there's a lot of other ways as well, right? Like you can swap high yield bonds for bank loans, right? And so by doing that, you go up the capital structure because now you own loans instead of bonds and you go from fixed rate to floating rate. Um, so th there's, there's a number of iterations there, but to just to give you a long answer to your question, in a 60-40 world, uh, how would I position for the current regime, uh, assuming that it's going to last? And I uh, agree with Luke that it is going to last. Um, the way I would position myself is to question what goes into the 40. Yuri, one, one quick question, actually, uh, before we get into kind of gold and silver and Bitcoin, kind of more hard assets. Um, you started to talk to this a little bit about duration. I think I was... Uh, Half halfway there, but one one question that I have for you: When you look at that, maybe the sixty bucket um, equities in general, um, would you rather, in an inflationary environment or one of financial oppression, be long more growth uh, stocks? Because on the one hand, we currently are in an environment where there's not very much growth. You yourself said, right, this probably isn't uh, the type of inflationary environment where there's a lot of growth. So on the one hand, I could actually see the current situation where there's a huge premium being paid for growth companies even more so, right? And like more uh, worth being paid on these kind of growthy companies. But on the other hand, I kind of think, well, if there's an inflationary environment and there's this perception that the value of the dollar is going to erode the further out I receive those dollars, then they would actually be more discounted in the future. So I kind of am like seeing both of them play out in my head, but I'm curious what you think, what's a better hedge for the type of environment that we're talking about? Would it be value stocks or growth stocks? Yeah, it's such a, it's such a good question. And frankly, I, I don't have an answer because, um, again, if we're in a different world of financial repression, then I don't know if the old rules apply. And by right. the old rules, I mean, you know, if we, if we think back to that matrix, that, that, that DCF matrix, right? Um, typically, growth stocks are higher PE, longer duration stocks than value stocks. And, and again, I'm thinking more of the growth of yesteryear, you know, like Colgate, Procter & Gamble, consumer staples, the quality growers. Now we have the quality growers still, but we have also have the big secular growers, you know, in the tech, consumer discretionary healthcare. But they're all proven free cash flow generators, which is why they're valued so high for all the right reasons. But typically, historically, when the discount rate rises, so historically, 
if we get into an inflationary regime, uh, usually rates rise with that because that's what they do. And then you want to be in value and small caps because those are better hedges against inflation. And I, and I, you know, I, I've looked at this extensively and the 60s and 70s, the 40s, these were all small cap value regimes, and these were periods of, of, high, of high inflation. Um, but then I think about, okay, if, if the Fed is going to be successful at repressing rates, just like the Bank of Japan has been, um, then that, that transition mechanism of rates rising when inflation rises, that may be broken. And then you think about, okay, you have a high PE, long duration stock, you plug it into the DCF, uh, and the discount rate in the DCF does not move up, um, then you don't get that usual response of these stocks are too high, given where what's happening with rates. And so I, I really don't have a good answer because normally value should outperform growth because high PE, long duration growth stocks are more sensitive to changes in the discount rate than value stocks are. But if the discount rate is artificially anchored lower than it should be, maybe that whole system breaks down. So the way I think about it is, you know, the, 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 the big growers, as we call them, uh, their ability to generate free cash flow is very well established. Right, so especially if growth uh, comes down from here, but even if it doesn't, they're, they're, you know, these are proven stocks and they are returning cash to shareholders via buybacks, more so than dividends. So assuming that we're not in a political environment where buybacks are, are getting you know, outlawed or, or, or you know, frowned upon, uh, if that continues, then these stocks should continue. So, but I also don't want to be long the dollar because I do think the dollar is going to go down from here as the Fed is or the U.S. is in a unique position to keep this fiscal monetary party going maybe longer than they would be in Europe and in Japan. They've already well, well ahead of us there. Um, so I want to be short the dollar as well. So the way I think about it is I don't want to I don't want to pit value and growth in the U.S. against each other but rather I want to keep both of them and then have a fair, a healthy exposure to non-U.S. stocks uh, in addition to that. Got it. Um, very wise, <laughs> I would say. Um, and Yuri, maybe we can use this opportunity here to pivot to uh, everyone's favorite uh, bucket of hard assets, which I want to talk a little bit about precious metals, specifically gold. Also, of course, uh, Bitcoin, which is the newcomer onto the scene here. Um, can you talk a little bit about... Um, I mean, when I think about gold, right, I mean, people tend to equate that to inflation, probably a more realistic uh, what that's actually hedging is negative real interest rates, which is um, financial oppression that you were talking about kind of before. How do you think about gold uh, and Bitcoin as well as a bucket? And I know you've got a, uh, you know, we were looking at this chart before, and there's a great uh, chart, the uh, stock to flow model of Bitcoin as well. So yeah. wherever you want to start on this whole topic. Yeah, well, why don't we start here? So we, we mentioned this earlier. Um, the bottom panel is the, is gold's market value. So not the price, but the market value. Uh, so the value of all the above ground gold uh, ever, ever mined. Uh, it's value relative to M2. And you can see that that's a pendulum that kind of swings back and forth. And per, during periods of monetary inflation, it tends to swing up. And so gold should be gaining ground. Um, and it was doing that um, in line with um, where real rates are. So you probably have, have seen these charts. Um, I, I don't have them uh, here today, but gold follows. Uh, so if you take the, the tips real yield, uh, gold follows that, that level very, very precisely. And it's interesting because the 10-year real yield um, is less negative than the five-year real yield because the five-year, you know, using the five-year tips, is more sensitive to Fed policy because Fed policy in terms of forward guidance, in terms of quantitative easing, tends to hit the belly of the curve much more than the long end. So the five-year uh, real yield is actually much more negative than, than the 10-year. Uh, but so gold was following that and still is. Um, but you know, I, I think Bitcoin just kind of stole the show uh, starting about a year and a half ago. You know, during as soon as that that Fed response came uh, during the lockdowns, you know, Bitcoin briefly had that massive fall, uh, you know, to around three thousand, and then it's just been a, a runaway uh, train ever since. And I think for investors that are entering 
the, the, the scene, right? And they're, they're putting money to work and they're looking at, okay, holy cow, you know, we haven't seen this uh, ever before in terms of, you know, this yeah. kind of fiscal monetary coordination. Um, I can buy the old gold or I can buy kind of the, the, the shiny digital um, version. And the way I think about it, um, and maybe we can go to, to the stock to flow in the demand model um, chart, is that, you know, Bitcoin really is one of the most unique asset classes on the planet because it has even more scarcity than gold, right? So that's the stock to flow model. Um, uh, but if you look at, at, um, at, at the supply curve of gold, it's pretty steady. In, in other words, the, the same amount, the same percentage of supply gets mined kind of year in, year out. Sometimes it goes down a little, something goes up, but it's it's a fairly constant rate of, of, of new mining relative to the outstanding supply. So that's, that's you know, literally your stock to flow. Whereas for Bitcoin, of course, we all know the story. It's much more asymptotic uh, and it becomes much more scarce. So it has better scarcity characteristics than gold. Um, and of course, it has this whole demand function, right? So in this chart here, uh, you know, I, I took the plan B stock to flow model and I kind of, you know, reverse engineered it a little bit using my own in-sample data, but it shows kind of the same thing, uh, which is the, the orange line there. But I think the more important one really is the, is the demand curve. Um, so, you know, th this is Metcalf's law, of course, it's, um, it's, it's the S-curve uh, feature that we've seen play out in, in many other parts of the world economy, you know, internet subscription or internet adoption, uh, mobile phone subscription. And actually it's funny when I, when I published this on Twitter, uh, I don't know when it was in March or something, uh, you know the 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 the, the, uh, the Bitcoin maximalists were were like were like you know hating on me for using mobile phones. Like how can you look at mobile phones? It's like that's not the point. The point is is that they follow this exponential growth curve, mm -hmm. um, and 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 you know it doesn't matter which one you use because that curve looks the same for all of these new technologies. And so um, so that's kind of the, that's the the pink line there. And to me, that's the other feature. It's this whole network effect. And the same reason Google and Amazon are, are these giant companies that are hard to, to, to penetrate as a competitor, uh, you know, Bitcoin has kind of the, the same thing going forward. And so it's interesting that um, up to now, both the demand and the supply model um, have really explained you know, in a very uh, good way where the price has been. And, and part of that is just uh, is the result of curve fitting, because anytime you do a regression, you have to curve fit the history, of course. But going forward, um, the next and last time that the two models intersect, uh, because the demand model um, becomes more asymptotic than the supply model. So mm -hmm. I think the supply model, stock to flow, I think it's a, it's a great model. But it has its limitations, right? I mean, supply scarcity alone is not enough to create value. You need to have a demand side as well. Right. And also, if you take the S2F you know, into infinity, or at least until all 21 coins are mined, you get to kind of ridiculous numbers like, you know, a billion dollars for a Bitcoin. It doesn't doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So the demand model, I think, is a far more conservative model. But even then, uh, in a couple of years, which is the last time those two lines cross, you're looking at, you know, $110,000 per coin. So that's still a 4x uh, from, from current levels or a 3x from current levels. So um, so I think, you know, these features and, and, you know, we all obviously we know this, you know, Fidelity has a digital asset um, uh, arm as well. We're seeing lots of demand, you know, ever since I wrote that paper, uh, you know, four months ago, uh, we've had a lot of meetings with big corporations, pension plans, even treasurers about, you know, what is this? How do we how do we look at this? And so we're in this adoption curve. Um, I, I like in Bitcoin as uh, it's, it's like, you know, as where gold was back in the 70s, right? So mm -hmm. actually, maybe we pull up the other chart, the, the ones with the bubbles. Um, and I think this is actually a, a really cool way to, to visualize this. So yeah, no, that one. Uh, the, the, Sorry. One, the one with the bubbles, yes. Um, so it's it's slightly, nope, yeah. So this is a slightly psychedelic chart. Um, <laughs> but, um, this is gold going back to 1700. Uh, the horizontal is the 12-month vol, the volatility. The vertical is the one-month return. And so most of this period, gold was, you know, we either had the gold standard or gold was actually money. Uh, and then we had the Bretton Woods era, which, you know, obviously was 
the dollar was pegged to gold and all the other currencies were pegged to the dollar. Uh, and then from 1971 on, we were in the, in the fiat era. So the blue dots are gold, the orange dots is silver, and the silver or the gray dots is Bitcoin. And the size of the bubble, no, no pun intended, is um, the, si the, the, the amount of excess money. So again, money supply growth minus GDP growth. So it gives you a sense of the monetary impulse um, in the system and, and how these asset classes um, hedge against that. So I think the value proposition for gold is it's not an all-weather asset. Like you don't want to have, you don't want to always have this in the portfolio because it doesn't compound, whereas stocks compound at 10, 11%. And this is why when you look at an efficient frontier chart of risk versus return, commodities in general, and including gold, they don't really fare well because they have a lot of volatility, but they really, over the very, very long term, just keep up with inflation. And because they don't compound, they just sit there, right? Um, silver is the same thing. Um, and so, but in this chart, you can see that as gold was able to grow up during the 70s, and I liken it as a, as a teenager. You know, teenagers have lots of potential, but they can also they can also wreck your car, right? So there, it's this is this is the price discovery mode, right? So it's an asset class coming of age, and so during the 70s. Gold, you know, was all over the place. It went up 20-fold from 71 to 80, from 35 to 870, but it had many, many very large drawdowns, 30, 40%, just like Bitcoin, right? But Bitcoin is even amplified, right? And you can see on this chart, those big bubbles there, you can see the distribution of the positive versus the negative returns for Bitcoin is much more positively skewed uh, skewed than it is for silver and gold. And so to me, th this is why Bitcoin is kind of the, the, the new version of gold and silver is because of its, uh, of its convexity. It's like a more convex version of gold because of its network effects and its increased scarcity um, that this has become kind of the leader in terms of hedging against monetary inflation. Um, having said that, I own gold, I own silver, I own the gold miners, which is a way to get some cash flow out of out of gold, uh, and I own Bitcoin, of course. Uh, so I, I view them as all being different players on the same team. So I'm not I'm not a, a maxi in that sense where it's like it has to be Bitcoin and nothing else. Uh, I think there's room for everyone, uh, but Bitcoin obviously has a, a very unique function because to, I liken it to where gold was in the 70s. So it is a teenager coming of age, massive upside, massive drawdowns, all kinds of other shenanigans going on that we read about every day. Uh, but that's that's the price discovery process. Yeah. Um, you're in, yeah, you've already been really generous with your time. Uh, and I just want to, I, I've got one more question for you before we kind of wrap up here. And by the way, I love that analogy as a teenager. We had John Pfeffer on a much earlier episode, uh, actually, and he compared, I love, he, he's the writer, he's the author of an institutional investor's take on crypto assets, talked a lot about Bitcoin, said very similar things to what you said. He, he compared uh, Bitcoin to a, a startup. Um, or, or like a startup contender to be a reserve asset. And that's why that explains kind of the volatility, but also the, the upside as well. Um, one thing I'd be curious to get your kind of take on here in general, two parts. Uh, so one, someone posted this chart on Twitter a little while ago that was like really stuck with me. And it was kind of the returns over the last hundred years of various different asset classes. So they had gold, they had um, uh, bonds, they had real estate, they had equities, etc. Uh, gold underperformed everything over basically whatever time period you want to look at, unless you're cherry picking those little spikes uh, that you were showing on that chart earlier. And when I first saw that, I was like, well, why would anyone own this asset then? Why over a long period of time it underperforms everything? But then in my head, I thought, well, actually, what if gold really is a store of value and it's money, you actually kind of want that to be the lowest returning thing, right? You don't want the hurdle rate or the cost of capital to exceed the returns that actual productive asset classes have. And ever since I started thinking about it like that, I've started to think of store of value not really as something, that's not like a permanent trade that you want to necessarily have. Um, because over time, it will underperform other more productive assets. Do you agree with that overall framework or how do you think about it? How, how do you think about yeah. that? No, it's a great question actually. And if you could still pull up um, slide sure, nine, sure. Yep. Um, I think it speaks to that. And to me, this has to do with um, 
productive versus unproductive money. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think actually it also speaks to um, something that I, I do think uh, I do uh, think um, the Bitcoin crowd can be a little guilty of, and that is to overstate the monetary debasement of fiat. I mean, clearly fiat money has you know is debased all the time, and we've all seen the charts where you know a dollar. And actually, this chart, you know, I'm, I'm a total history geek, as you can tell. So this chart goes Me back too. to 1700, oh and my it's God. the purchasing power of stocks versus gold versus cash. So so interest or interest bearing cash wow. versus gold and versus just you know a, a dollar under a mattress, right? So uh, that red line at the bottom is that's your currency debasement, right? So a dollar in 19 in 1700 is worth two cents today. But uh, but I think, you know, I, I think it, it overstates the debasement story a little bit because, uh, yeah, maybe in 1700, we didn't have a bank to put our, our dollars in, right? But these days, um, at least in normal days of positive um, real rates, which of course we're not in today, but normally um, if you have cash, it's in a bank or it's in a money market fund or it's in a, in a CD or, or what have you. Um, and most of the time that money actually does keep up with inflation. So if you look at this chart, um, the yellow line is gold. So $1 of gold in 1700 is $94 today. And $1 in the CPI, I mean, there was no CPI in 1700, but these are different inflation indices tied together from the UK and Holland and France, et cetera. But $1 inflated back then would be $65 today. So the Mm. CPI will be 65 if it was one back then. So it tells you, something we already know, which is that gold is a store of value. It keeps up with inflation because until 1970, it was money. And since 1970, it's been able to freely trade to keep up with inflation. So it's interesting that uh, $1 of gold and $1 of inflation are worth almost the same today, right? And you can see that stair-step action in that yellow line that like in 1933, you can see that little jump there. That was FDR changing the, the convertibility from 20 to $35. Uh, and then the 1970s, you see that, and then the 2000s again. But you compare that to cash, interest-bearing cash, so productive mm-hmm. cash, if you go by, uh, yep, um, $1 of cash in 1700 will be $326,000 today, far exceeding inflation. And, and what that means is that normally, in normal times, not, not today, today is not a normal time, but during normal times, cash will at least keep up with inflation when it, when it earns an interest rate, um, and it will oftentimes do better than inflation. Yeah. But I think the, the main point of your question and the main point of this chart is that you compare cash, 326000 and then you look at the value of equities. It's 10,000 times higher than what the cash number is. Right. And that is the magic of compounding, right? You, you, you have to be in either stocks or bonds or something generating a cash flow to be able to compound, right? Gold does not compound because it doesn't have a cash flow. Bitcoin doesn't compound unless you're, you're, you're stacking and all that stuff. But that to me is still kind of the Wild West a little bit. Uh, but this is the difference between an asset that compounds and one that doesn't. And gold, of course, um, doesn't. And that's why it's a store value. It's a very powerful hedge against adverse monetary regimes like we're in today. And that's where Bitcoin comes in. But it's not it's not an asset, in my view, that you just always have, right? Um, because a lot of the times it's just sitting there being unproductive. Yeah. The last thing I actually wanted to ask you about, and then we can kind of wrap things up, and I want to hear about um, how folks can find more information out about you, is, uh, again, a little bit of a shameless plug here because we're both going to be in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire in a couple of weeks to talk about this live uh, and big history nerd that I am. I've got my book here, The Battle of uh, Bretton Woods. Um I'd be curious, like, you know, one of the things that gets espoused by Bitcoin as a community is that this is going to replace the dollar as the reserve asset. Um, When I think about monetary systems that are based on, you know, the best analogy that we have is the gold standard, right, which is based on kind of this fixed supply asset, uh, those historically tend to not work super well. Uh, And sound money, 
you know, you could make the argument it's never really been fully tried, but it's kind of one of, it's almost like communism in a little bit of a way. It sounds good on paper, but if you have a government that isn't honest, then it's not particularly useful. So there were really good reasons why we eventually went off the gold standard, right? Uh, which is basically, you know, to way oversimplify it, governments didn't go by it, they bankrupted themselves and they moved off. Um, when you think about the future and just how the monetary system is structured in general, what role do you think are we moving towards like a sound money system? Do you think Bitcoin has a central role? You know, aside from just like returns, how do you think we're moving forward towards adjusting kind of the monetary system? Yeah, I mean, that that is, you know, the, the big existential question. And, and you know, um, I'm not, you know, a total student of, of, of history in terms of the Great Depression, but I do I do think that that has formed... Um, current monetary policy in a big way, right? Remember yeah. during the financial crisis, Ben Bernanke, you know, he had been a scholar uh, or was a, is a scholar of the Great Depression. And I did, you know, I did some, some research on it. And what happened was um, the Fed was kind of helpless uh, to to respond. So it was a perfect storm, right? We had the, 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 the laissez-faire um, policies of, you know, Herbert Hoover, Calvin Coolidge, Right. Um, and they said, you know what, if the banks made back loans, screw them, they, they, they should suffer the consequences. And of course, it, it led to a huge banking crisis, a big runs on the bank, uh, on all the banks, um, many thousands of banks failed. And then we, with the gold standard, you know, that failure was so deflationary. And because the Fed was not allowed or able to to uh, conduct stimulus, you know, uh, you know uh, policy stimulus, also because we had Benjamin Strong and he had died in 1928. And so the Fed was kind of rudderless. But essentially, the deflation that came from the banking collapse, uh, combined with the gold standard, made real rates, you know, like now real rates are minus 2% or so, they went to like plus 12%. I mean, imagine how just depressing and deflationary that can be. So, I mean, so uh, it creates, you know, discipline monetarily, but it can wipe out your economy when, when you need policy tools to stimulate demand. Right. And I think that was the lesson from the financial crisis and Bernanke was, you know, you, you can say he was the right person at the, at the right time or the wrong person at the wrong time, depending on which side you are. But my sense is that um, as much as I believe in, in Bitcoin and gold and silver and hard assets in general, as anchors during times of you know monetary inflation or price inflation, I think the chances of central banks going back to some going back to some sort of hard peg uh, is slim to none. I don't think central bankers will ever want to give away that control. And if it was just the U.S. doing what the U.S. is doing, and it wasn't the ECB and the Bank of Japan and everyone else. It'll be one one thing, right? Because then uh, you have one currency that is going to fall relative to all the other currencies that are fiscally prudent. But because this is a global problem, you know, the debt levels is a global problem, negative real rates, or at least, you know, zero rates, negative rates, uh, quantitative easing is happening basically in, in 60% of the mark of, of the world's GDP. Um, you get into kind of the currency debasement. And so Bitcoin, gold, silver as hard assets win that battle against debasing currencies, but all currencies are kind of debasing at the same time. So there is not a clear winner or loser. And I don't see any central bank um, taking the lead saying, okay, we're, we're gonna create a, a, a peg or, or some kind of floating peg or some kind of anchor um, because they don't have to, because again, their currency is falling or, 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 or rising just as much as, as other currencies. And, and you know, if you look at the, the dollar, the real dollar, if you look at the JP Morgan real effective um, currency, the effective exchange rate from 1970 to now, uh, it has lost half a percent per year. Uh, you know, I mean, it, yes, it's the basement, but it's not 
you know, it's not like you know, the U.S. dollar is becoming like the Argentinian uh, you know, peso. So I, I don't think central bankers see the need for a hard peg, whether it's Bitcoin or gold or what have you. But that doesn't mean they won't work because the private, you know, the private investors or the private markets will, 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 will bring up the value of those assets when there is um, monetary inflation going on. And that's exactly where we are today. Uh, Yurin, you've been so generous with your time. Thank you so much for a fascinating conversation. Uh, if folks listening to the show want to find out more about you or the work that you do at Fidelity, what's the best way to do that? Um, we're on, on LinkedIn, just uh, just my name, and uh, and on on Twitter at uh, Timur Fidelity. Um, and so um, a lot of the charts that you see here, we're, we're posting them every day, and so we're having a lot of fun, a, a lot of fun doing that. Yeah, it's a great follow. Absolutely recommend that everyone listening uh, certainly go check out Yuri on Twitter. Uh, again, thank you so much. This has been great. Until next time. Awesome. Thanks, All Mike. Right. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Yeah, see you soon. Bye.